as Eric said, I'm Derek Hodel. I have my wife Abigail here and my three kids. Um, it's an honor and privilege to be here with you all this morning. Uh, a little bit about us real quick. We, we're from El Paso. We were attending Christ Community when we heard about this church plant in Monunk. And um, we just believed that it was our role. We had some role to be here and um, involved in getting getting Redeemer started. We really didn't know what that was going to look like when we decided to join join the launch team. But, um, you know, we had COVID came and kind of threw a wrench in things for us a little bit. But one way or another, we ended up here and we're just, we're glad to be here, glad to be fellowshipping with you. And we're just um, excited to see what the Lord's going to do here in Monunk and excited to see what uh, what comes out of it. So, um, I, honestly, I didn't think I'd ever be speaking. I, I don't have any formal training. I've never spoken in front of anybody before. So um, if I'm obviously a little nervous, but uh, I, I do have a passion for God's word rightly exegeted. And I, I want to share that with you. And so I, I hope that makes up for a lack of a refined and polished speech that uh, you might be used to. So Eric was gracious enough to ask me if I'd consider doing this sometime, and at some point in our conversation, he reassured me um, by saying, you know, you're going to read the Word, right? And I said, yeah, yeah, I can, I can at least read. So uh, he said, yeah, that's, that's half of it, or something like that. So, um, so that was encouraging. Um, and I agree, a, tr- a pastor's role is to read the Word and explain it. You know, he, he doesn't need to be bogged down with, he's not a therapist, he's not all these other things. He's, he's, he's here to read the Word and, and rightly explain it. And so, again, I'm humbled to be able to do just that this morning. Um, I'll just, again, with no formal polished training here, I'm just going to go read through verse by verse and explain what I've come to know and understand about this rich text. But before we do that, let's go to Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in this place today. We thank you for, for your word and pray that your spirit would reveal to us the riches contained in it. May we humbly receive your instruction. Amen. Uh, as you guys know, we've been studying Mark uh, since basically since Redeemer started almost a year ago, uh, with just a little break this summer to talk about, or to go through James. Um, Once we started meeting again in person, we picked back up in Mark, and all that timing worked out awesome. Um, It's just been a blessing to me to go through and hear hear Eric preach in Mark, and and, um, just reconnect with some of the deep truths that are here. All throughout the book of Mark, the underlying message is, Probably the primary underlying message is Jesus is God. You know, we see that by this time in Jesus' ministry, he's performed countless miracles, healings, raising the dead, feeding the, the mass crowds. All these things exist to verify that he is God. You know, this, this, this wasn't for any other purpose. Um, other, it will also to display his compassion um, for the people, but ultimately to verify who he was so that he can say he came to forgive sins. The other theme that I recognize going through Mark and, and all the Gospels actually is Jesus' relationship to Israel, primarily through his 
uh, relationship with the, their representation, which would be the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and, and the other. They were the leaders of Israel. So I think we really need to understand that everything kind of has to be seen with that as the back, backdrop, the underlying theme here. So Jesus is proving that he is God the Messiah, the fulfillment of prophecy, all while the false leaders continue to reject him. Up until this point, we've seen time and time again where the mem- members of the Sanhedrin, be it Pharisees, Sadducees, are trying to trap Jesus in order that they may be rid of him because he's a threat. He's a threat to them and their way of life that they've kind of built and established for themselves. So I really want to focus again on the setting for this passage because I think it's important to really understand where we are and and how this and what what is really being said here. So this is still the same day. This is Wednesday. So we've basically been in Wednesday of the last week of Jesus' life on earth. This is the last week of his ministry. Um, this coming Friday, two days from this point, he'll be crucified. So yeah, I, I don't know how many Sundays we've been preaching on this same day. It goes back quite a ways. But anyway... Um, we know that Monday he made his triumphal entry, and yesterday he cleansed the temple again for the second time. He did that three years ago, and you know at the beginning of his ministry. And again, Friday he will be crucified. So a lot happens in this week. You know that's quite a big transition to go from being hailed as the king to you know them claiming, clamoring for his crucifixion. Jesus has been teaching all day. He's about to give his final message publicly. So I imagine, um, well, at verse, at the end of verse 40, um, yeah, Jesus is done speaking to the crowds. And then, so from that point on, he's only speaking to his disciples. Um, Just making sure I got everything in order here. And so, again, the, the people are, who are currently captivated by his teaching and who praised him just two days ago, again, will be shouting for his execution this coming Friday. So even Jesus, with his full knowledge of this coming, because he is sovereign and he knows, and he's already foretold this, he still has compassion in his heart for them and offers them one final message before he's done speaking to the crowds for good. So... I have to think that there's a significant level of importance placed on this message because it's his last message. You know, I mean, if, if I had one final thing to say, I, I think it would be an important one. So I would want to give it a little extra credibility or a little extra um, looking into. So there, there's a lot of warnings like this in Scripture, um, you know, Jude and the epistles all talk about, you know, false teachers, because that's what we're going to get into here. But um, so, so again, it's, it's, it's reiterated in different places. But let's, let's go ahead and read the text before I get too far into this, and then we'll, we'll just unpack it here. Um, Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 38, he also said in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who go around in long robes and who want greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. 
These will receive the harsher judgment. And then sitting across from the temple treasury, he watched how the crowds dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. And then a a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, I truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put into the treasury more than all the others. For they gave out of their surplus, but she gave out of her poverty. She has put in everything she has that she had to live on, all she had to live on. So, um, again, all throughout Mark, Jesus confronts, rebukes, and condemns the leaders of Israel for their corruption. And here is, again, the final warning publicly, or the final condemnation of, of them publicly. And as we talked in previous weeks, the leaderships consist of Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, the, the Sadducees, again, were, um, were the ones who believed just in Moses' law. You know, they were, I don't know if you'd call it more, the, more conservative, where the Pharisees were a little more, uh, believed in everything and then some. They added stuff to the law. So the, the Sadducees, again, just to give you a little bit of background on them, they were, uh, they were the political class, they were the aristocrats, they were the wealthy, um, upper society, they were the elite so they weren't, honestly, they, they weren't even really interested in what Jesus said until he threatened their, their business, you know, they, they, and potentially uh, messed up their relationship that they had with Rome, um, whose political involvement helped to keep them where they were in, in that society at the time. They, they would have been the ones that would have ran the operations at the temple, like the, the whole racket, the money-changing operation that Jesus referred to as you know, when he said, you've turned my temple into a, a den of thieves, that, that would have been the Sadducees thing. So they were kind of the main target of that. And again, they didn't really care what Jesus had to say until, um, until he came and started cleansing the temple. Now he's got their attention. Um, so they never really associated with the people. You know, they didn't go to the marketplace. Like, like I said, they were like the wealthy elite, so they would have probably sent somebody in, you know, a servant in to go with. So, so they didn't really mill around with the people. Um, The Pharisees, on the other hand, they would have been among the people. They would have been with them. They would have been everywhere that Jesus was preaching to the crowds. There was always Pharisees because they would have been more of the middle class, more the people's people. And so they actually had generally had a rapport with the people. You know, and we might think, you know, these Pharisees, you know, reading through Mark, you know, these typically are the bad guys, you know, but um, however, most of the time, the people actually looked up to them and agreed with them. I, I think if you like the Sermon on the Mount, you know, they were, um, they were, uh, again, they looked up to them. They agreed with, with them on a lot of things. Um, ultimately, they will choose the Pharisees and their false religious system over Christ. So as for the scribes now, so all scribes were Pharisees, not all Pharisees were scribes. So the scribes were of the Pharisee group, that, that sect. They were the lawyers, um, and, or the, you know, the, the legal beagles, if you will, of that system. Since they still operate as, as a theocracy, then they functioned both as the keepers of God's law, but also the keepers of civil law. So they would have handled the personal legal dealings that people would have had with each other as well as 
the keeping of God's law and the interpretation of that. So the spiritual leaders of Israel were also the government. Now, this warning and rebuke that Jesus gives is indeed a horrendous and terrifying thing. Um, it, we can, when we really dig into it, you know, you'll, you'll understand. Because uh, if you go to Matthew 23, you'll, don't, we don't have to go there now, but you'll find a, um, that whole chapter, it's a very detailed and lengthy account of what Jesus actually said here. This is, you know, again, Mark is kind of a, kind of a brief version of, of the whole thing. And if you want to go there, you can see all kinds of stuff. I think, uh, I don't know how many, countless times he says, woe to you Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe to you blind guides. Woe to you fools. He calls them sons of hell who are making sons of hell. All this is found in, in the full account in Matthew. Making sons of hell. I mean, like that really hit me. You know, I mean, a, a real disciple or a real leader, spiritual leader would make disciples, you know, and these guys, if the false teachers are only making more sons of hell like themselves is, is what he's saying. So, you know, let's look again what Mark says, though. Um, they wore long robes. Okay, so these garments would have been expensive, distinct from anything anybody else would have been wearing. Um, they would have certainly been designed to draw attention to themselves. They would have been clearly seen and recognized in the crowds. I mean, there, there would have been no doubt who these people were. So it's kind of like if the Pope would walk in here with his long hat and all this stuff, you know, you would have known. He would have stood out from everybody else. Um, the people, again, these people, the Pharisees and scribes, again, would have been from the middle class. So they would have had the favor of the people, um, but they still kind of wanted to be above the people. They still wanted the attention. Um, they also wore these tassels on their robe, which you can see there's a description of that in Numbers 15. And these little tassels were supposed to remind them of God's law and, and, his, and that they were basically set apart as Israel. Jesus actually would have wore these. There's a description of that in, uh, in the Bible too, where he would have wore, rightly wore these things. But over time, these things got longer and bigger and, again, more just for, just for the show aspect of it than, than, uh, than what it was originally designed to. They wanted greetings in the marketplace. So these would have been, they would have demanded, like, certain prestigious titles. So today, something like doctor or senator or... They actually, again, the description in Matthew says they preferred things like rabbi, father, exalted one, exalted teacher. You know, like, it just they wanted people to just fawn over him. So pretty much the extreme opposite of the humility that Jesus always demonstrated. In, in the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets... Most people in synagogues and assembly halls at that time would have had to stand or sit on the floor. Probably wouldn't have been very comfortable, but um, sometimes they had benches like along the front or along the wall or up front. And again, those would have been a little more comfortable and those would have been recognized as somebody of importance, uh, people of honor. So obviously, again, they wanted that. That's consistent with who they were, who their character is. But now we come to this part, who devour widows' houses. So that's obviously uh, 
Obviously not good, uh, but what does this mean? Actually it means to completely consume, um, completely devour, like yeah, leave, leave those widows with absolutely nothing. So as we said earlier, the scribes were the lawyers. So one way they could have or would have done this, they would have convinced these women to allow them to protect their estate you know, after all, that's what they were there for. They were supposed to protect those. And in the process of doing that, they would charge exorbitant fees for their services. Uh, they would demand support sometimes. Um, and sometimes that would be like room and board even. They would stay with these widows. And there are actually accounts of these men eating gluttonously out of these widows' homes and I, literally eating them out of house and home. And then they would rack up all these ridiculous debts that these women would owe and, and then when she couldn't pay, they would take her house as payment, basically make her pledge that as collateral. So, so that's, and, and then she would basically end up with absolutely nothing. So that's how they would devour her house. Many of these women didn't have anyone to take care of them. And the welfare system that was woven into God's law was being ignored. And these women would literally die as, as a result of being neglected by those who were designated to care for them. I mean, they couldn't, they couldn't go back and get a job or anything. So, you know, in that society, uh, they, they would have nothing. Um, in Mark 7, Jesus points out in Exodus where Moses says to honor your father and your mother. Uh, this is referring to meeting their physical and financial needs. And in Deuteronomy 27, it says, be cursed any, anyone be cursed who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. And then if you look in Job 22, remember when Job's friends are trying to explain why all these calamities have come upon him? You know, they, they run, out, run down this litany of things that, you know, he must have done because, you know, your sin must be so great, Job, that you brought all this stuff on you. And, and one of the things they say is, you must have sent widows away with nothing. You know, like, that's, that's the worst of the worst. So there's, there's plenty of prescriptions in Scripture for caring for widows, plenty of instruction, and plenty of warnings for those who don't. So, again, the people would have known this. So how do these guys, you know, have the rapport with the people, and yet they don't get criticized for that? Well, again, I'll remind us that the Pharisees violated God's law by adding to it. And then, you know, the Sadducees took, took away from the law. So they both violated on both ends of that. But uh, they added all kinds of ridiculous rules and ceremonies. The Pharisees did, but also misused things like Corbin. Um, so Corbin was an offering promised to God, and, and you couldn't break that promise once you offered that money to God or with that sacrifice or gift or whatever. Instead of helping their parents like they were commanded to, they would declare their money Corbin, and they could basically give it back to themselves. So this was the despicable act. Jesus calls this out in Mark 7 again. So there, there would have been cases, I guess, where I suppose anybody who despised their parents could declare his money Corbin and, and, just, and, and just to spite your parents if you wanted to, if you didn't want to give them your money. And, and then it would be marked for God, and then it couldn't be... That couldn't be redacted. So um, that was, again, a way, kind of a loophole for them around that. 
Um, and I don't suppose the Pharisees would have ever objected as they would have been the beneficiary of that. So, um, and I also kind of wonder, you know, when we talk, talk about the rich that we're giving out of their surplus, you know, I have to wonder knowing this, that if the, there weren't some of those people who were doing that just so they wouldn't have to give it. I mean, I don't know. That's just speculation. But anyway, uh, the level of corruption just must have been unimaginable what was going on there. And this is why Jesus continues in verse 40. They, they say long prayers just for show. You know, they don't offer long prayers to God out of love or devotion to him. You know, their prayers are just for show. Again, they just want everyone to think that they're holy and devoted to God. And Jesus calls out their hypocrisy. At, at the end, Jesus says that these will receive the harsher judgment. I think I want to take a minute right there just to point out in our secular society, you know, someone might think they or someone else is closer to God because they are religious. You know, that person's religious. They go to church every week. You know, you know, I'm, they, they may be, they must be closer to God. Well, what he's saying here is the harsher judgment is, it, it, you know, it seems as counterintuitive, but he's saying the harsher judgment is, is for those, any, anyone who knows God's word and says and claims to believe it in their heart but rejects him, ultimately is the worst punishment. There's a hotter spot in hell, if you will, for those who apostatize. So this is serious business, and Jesus doesn't mince words. He doesn't sugarcoat it. You know, it would be better to be completely irreligious than to come all the way to the knowledge of truth and then reject it. Like the apostate Pharisees did, ultimately. So this brings us to verse 41. And and before I reread that, I I just want to remind us here that this is it. After, after verse 40, Jesus is completely done speaking to the crowds. He's, he's done that his whole, all throughout Mark, his whole ministry. He's done, answer, he's done getting questioned from the Pharisees, and he's done speaking to the crowd. At this point, it's only to the apostles going forward, um, to his disciples. Jesus is, uh, yeah, we know that Well, I'll just read this again. We'll just go through this again, starting in verse 41. Sitting across from the temple treasury, he watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were putting in large sums. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put put more into the treasury than all the others, for they gave out of their surplus, but she gave out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she has to live on. At this point, we also know that the crowd's interest in Jesus has never advanced beyond one of a superficial and shallow one. I mean, really, they, only, they were only interested in what Jesus can do for them. You know, the, the crowds, the free food, you know, they just wanted wanted him to do that and yet and still have to recognize him as as God. So um I I also also want to recognize too that 
while we are, while it looks like there is um, a, a break here, and, and this is a, a different thought or different idea, the original text does not ever have any chapter breaks, section titles, verses. You know, these are all things that are here to help us kind of organize the text. So, so really, this is all one flowing story. That's why I kind of read that together. And um, again, the overarching theme here is Jesus' confrontation and warning with the Pharisees. And then, then you go beyond into chapter 13, and he's talking about all the, the, the destruction and the, the tribulation and the, the signs of the end and all, all this stuff. So it's, it all kind of flows together. Um, and we need to, again, keep that in mind as we go forward. So we, we go from Jesus teaching the crowds to him sitting and observing in the temple court. This would have been a busy place, especially with now with more people in town for Passover. So I imagine the busyness that this, that in all the busyness, this widow would have been easily overlooked. But Jesus, being omniscient, would have known of her presence and thus summoned his disciples and when Jesus says here, what Jesus says here, I think really needs to be examined carefully. You know, and, and before I go on anymore, I just, just, I think I need to say, lest you think Eric made me give this message today so that he wouldn't have to give you some guilt trip message on giving. That's, that's not what the passage is about. So I'm just going just gonna to throw that out there first and foremost. Um, no, we would agree this is not a lesson on giving. You know, we don't... We're not going to go there. So what Jesus says, just notice what he says. He simply states his observation. Um, he never actually qualifies a commendation, and he also never condemns the rich. Um, by the way, the Greek word here for rich, when he says the rich gave more, it simply means enough. Now, this isn't Bill Gates rich. This isn't wealthy rich. It just means it's middle class rich. It's you and I rich. Basically, it says they had, it means that they had enough to give generously and they still had enough to live on. That's, that's, that's the contrast as opposed to the widow who gave all and had nothing left to live on. So I would assume that most of us are in that rich category. You know, we, we have enough we can give and still go and buy our lunch. If there's someone here that doesn't, please come and see us and we'll, we'll take care of that. But, um, but anyway, so, so that was... That's what that means. They simply had enough to give generously and meet their physical needs. Um, I would say if there ever is a message on Christian giving in this section, it would have to be that of the rich, right? I mean, giving is the behavior of true believers. That it, generous giving that pleases the Lord flows from the heart. And, and, it, and when a true believer is blessed with much, he gives much. So... But we can't do that either, really, because, again, there are no qualifications for, for such an example here. Um, and if, if we're supposed to give all that we have, just like the widow, and, and be left with absolutely nothing, you know, Jesus would have qualified it with something like, now go and do like her, go do likewise, or go do like the woman that I love. But he, don't, he never said any of that stuff. All he's doing is stating an observation. So then what is the point that Jesus is making here? If, if we look at the last line, all she had to live on, you know, and, and realize that, yes, yeah, she, she now has nothing. She's, she's physically without anything, physically destitute. The Greek 
here uses one word for widow before she gave and then a different word for widow after she gave. And the second one just means completely destitute. So it just further illustrates that she had nothing physically. So we, and again, remember, someone like this woman in this time with nothing and no one to care for her would likely just went home and died. I mean, she couldn't get a job. I mean, the, the Pharisees, remember what they said? that You know, they, they pray, Lord, thank you for making me like, not, not like this tax collector or a woman, you know, or, or thank you that I'm not like them. You know, they despised and detested women. I mean, they were like third-class citizens. So a, another, again, she, she would have been completely destitute. By the way, another reason we can't say this is a lesson on giving is because Nowhere in scripture is it ever said that we should give everything we have and be completely destitute. That, that is not ever propped up. That is not, I mean, there are some false systems of religion who's, who, you know, you take a vow of poverty and that's supposed to please God or something, but that's not backed up in scripture. So, however, God does want us, he, he does care about our temporal needs. He does care about what we have and, and there are prescriptions in Scripture for that. You know, there, if the family is supposed to, supposed to help each other, and, and if there's no one in the family, the family that means goes to the church. I mean, there's, there, there's ways of, of providing for one another's physical needs. So, I mean, there's prescriptions in um, Scripture for acquiring wealth. I mean, work is an honorable thing. And, I mean, by wealth, it just means to provide for yourself and others. But, anyway, so going on, we, we then can't really praise the actions of this woman as, as uh, someone who's totally devoted to God and then someone whose actions are to be emulated. Because if, um, if, she, if, if her actions are totally devotion to God, well then, you know, I don't, I don't see that. I, I just can't back that up. So, um, so again, what, I don't think, yeah, I don't think we can support that really without imposing on Scripture, because like I said, it's not, it's not there. So what's going on here? Again, if we look back to the previous text, go back to the section um, in verse 40, they devour widows' houses. We're still talking about the same system here. It's not a coincidence that Jesus was was just warning about the scribes in this way, and now there just happens to be, all of a sudden, a, one of these completely destitute women just happens to show up in the next text. The, the, the only connection that I can truly draw here is that this woman is a victim. She's a victim of the false religious system that Jesus has spent all day in the better part of his earthly ministry warning about. This false religious system would require the people to pay alms. So that's alms to buy your salvation, essentially. You know, and this is why, this is why when the, again, the rich putting the money into the offering it would have been there clearly would have been a mindset that you know i'm i'm putting more money in i'm i'm buying you know basically buying my salvation i'm buying sacrifice all this stuff and this is why it was such a shock to the crowds when jesus said 
you know, it's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get into heaven. It wasn't because, he wasn't saying wealth and riches were bad. He was just saying that, you know, they trusted in their riches more than they did him. And it, he's basically highlighting the fact that this is a works-based system. And, and this man can't get to heaven with all this money because works aren't going to do it. So there was a system of works. No true religious system would ever leave people with absolutely nothing, would leave them destitute with no means, no temporal means to be satisfied, while the leaders enjoy and consume great wealth. The false teachers not only would declare their money Corbin so that they wouldn't have it to use to help the needy, they were also the ones making them poor in the first place. And if that wasn't enough, They would sometimes say that, oh, she's poor because of some sin in her life. And they would further justify their actions by saying, you know, that they were helping God to judge her. This is, this whole racket was basically the same thing that was going on again in the Catholic Church in the 1500s. So the church had the people believe that they were to go to heaven if if they could, you know, do all the ceremonial things and in the paying of indulgences. So when Martin Luther came on the scene, and he obviously had enough of the corruption, and when he finally let loose on, on all that deal, then that's when the Protestant Reformation began. And Again, it, the religious system, another example of the religious system taking advantage of the people. Another a modern equivalent to this type of false religious system that the Pharisees promoted is... is in our time, is this health, wealth, and prosperity movement. You know, your false teacher on TV, you turn, turn on your, turn on Daystar, TBN, and, you know, almost any one of those guys that you see up there is going to be just like this, is going to be doing the exact same thing, who's asking for your money and promising that God will bless you and return to you some bountiful harvest and financial gain, and then when that doesn't happen, you're left disillusioned and bitter. And the same Ponzi scheme repackaged. You know, these multi-millionaire false teachers, just like, just like the scribes, they prey on the most vulnerable. The, in fact, the number one constituency group that gives to these, these false ministries today, you probably guessed, older single women. You know, same, same system. So, again, people with barely enough money to get through the week, you know, give their last $50 to the... TV preacher to fund his $65 million jet in hopes that God will make them rich. You know, what a joke. You know, th- these poor people are deceived into giving, giving their all to a false religious system, thinking that they were being devoted to God when really they're just being made sons of hell, just like Jesus said in Matthew 23. You know, and, and then in Matthew 7, you know, Jesus says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. When, in contrast to that, James one twenty seven says, religion is pure, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Remember last Sunday when um, when Luke was talking, he talked about how Jesus answered the question that the scribes posed to him. You know, what is the greatest command? And that is to love your God and your neighbor. Jesus is highlighting to his disciples here 
that in this system has failed to love God and love God's people. So if you just look ahead in just chapter 13, I won't get too far into it, but um, just, just I, I want to read it because it does kind of support what we're saying here. As he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what massive stones, what impressive buildings. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. You got to understand the temple in this time had was lined with gold and jewels and artwork. And they say it was like one of the modern wonders of the ancient world. They say the eastern wall was like all covered in gold and shiny things. And so these guys were right to be a little bit uh, distracted by it, I would think. You know, when the sun would come up, they'd say it'd be so blinding because, it, you know, all the light reflecting off of it. I mean, countless millions of dollars worth of gold and money invested in this temple. And it's ridiculous how much was, you know, and Herod built it. So obviously, you know, it wasn't going to be a, a shack. You know, that guy was all about himself. So it's just, if you're not seeing at this point, you know, something, I, I mean, I understand seeing like a, a spiritual picture of what Christ has done for us through, through this widow giving, giving her life. Um, and that's true. But, but if you're not seeing the fact that, you know, here, here we have a person who is completely destitute and, and she's going to go home and physically go home and die while we have millions upon millions of dollars, you know, in this temple. Um, there's something wrong with this picture. And if, I just, I can't not see that when I read through this. So any, any system that abuses the poor and needy while also making them sons of hell is not going to escape judgment. In fact, theirs is the greater condemnation, right? And it did come down in 70 AD, and we'll read about that later. I don't want to give too much away now, but uh, the, yeah, 70 AD, the Romans destroyed it. They slaughtered millions of people, and, and yeah, there were a lot, of, a lot of victims of that system. The widow here was a victim of the system, and the system will have to answer for that, for, for their actions against her. But she and others like her, and, and this is important too, are not justified by the wrong that's been done to them. All of us are responsible for our own sin. She gave her life as a victim. She gave all, just like Jesus did. The difference is Jesus willingly laid down his life, and he gave all so that we who repent and believe in him can be justified to God. Every time Jesus rebuked the religious leaders, it was always a merciful act. He was always trying to get them to see their sin and repent and believe in him. He didn't just condemn their false system without offering something better. I mean, even after the lengthy rebuke in Matthew 23, the, the full account of that, he says at the end, he says... O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you would not. All throughout the gospel, we see Jesus' heart for the lost. You know, that, that is not lost in all of this. 
You know, there's, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot of warnings and rebukes and, and all that, but, but Jesus' heart for the lost is not missed here. When Jesus also said, Come to me, all you who are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy and the, my burden is light. He's talking about the oppressive system of works that people were made to bear by the false religious system. That, that's what that means. My, my burden is light. He's, he's offering an alternative. He is the alternative to the heavy burden that these false systems placed on people. And that statement there would also be qualified by the verse, when the verse that says the Sabbath was not made for man, rather man for the Sabbath. Again, that was, that, that's God's grace. And it was perverted. We know God does not take pleasure in the death of his wicked, but his justice... Well, we know God takes no ple- pleasure in the death of the wicked, but his justice must be satisfied. So repent and believe that Jesus is God... And he is the only way to true salvation and eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the rich truths that are here that we dig up and take in. Lord, thank you that you are a God of love and mercy. That you show us through your truth in your word how to have a relationship with you. Lord, thank you for providing a path to eternal life through the shed blood of Christ. Would you draw, Lord, to you anyone in our midst that may not know you? May no one here, Lord, perish with unforgiven sins. May we all know the complete forgiveness that you offer. We love you, Lord, and give you all the glory. Amen.